Bao Chao. That's hello and welcome in Scots Gaelic. At least I hope it is. And welcome indeed to City Breaks Edinburgh, episode 13, Witches, Cemeteries and Ghosts. I'm Marion Jones. You'll find, I think, that as soon as you start reading about Edinburgh and the sort of tours you could do when you get there, the subject of ghosts will keep coming up. Edinburgh is a city of ghosts, and it's certainly a city that has generated a lot of ghost stories. It's a city where more tours than you would think will take you through a cemetery or two. And it is also a city with a rather ghastly history of witches and burning women who people claimed were witches. And so I thought I'll combine all three of those things into one episode. What is it about Edinburgh? I think it's partly the dramatic setting, what Walter Scott's son-in-law called its majestic gloom, It's also perhaps the tenements, those tall, dark, spooky buildings with the little alleyways between them where all sorts of dreadful things might happen. And I think it's probably the history of the city as well, because it doesn't take you long to start unearthing stories of violent deaths. Christopher McNabb, author of A History of Edinburgh, explains this rather well. Quote, Whether or not you believe in the visitation of spirits, it is easy to understand where the city gets its spectral reputation. On the most ghoulish level, Edinburgh has seen epic amounts of blood and death within its streets, courtyards and wines, often with torture as an added horror. A restrained list of some of these ghastly events includes the execution or murder of nobles and court officials, such as David Rizzio, Lord Darnley, Sir William Cacoldi of Orange, the Earls of Morton, Montrose and Argyle, Acts of social violence, such as the slaying of covenanters during the killing times of the late 17th century, the grotesque series of witch burnings in the 16th century, visitations of Black Death from the 1300s, and the occasional large fire thrown in for good measure. So, having set the scene, the plan for the episode is to start with the witches, at the real end of the spectrum, if you will, not possibly because they were witches, but because they certainly were burnt as such and then to move through cemeteries, which kind of spans the other two topics. They're real enough, but they've got lots of ghostly stories attached to them. And then to move on finally to some of the ghost stories connected to the city of Edinburgh. And I have actually found a whole book of such, which I'll be recommending to you, and I've picked out one or two little snippets to read. So, the witches then, did they exist? Well, it's certainly true that women were prosecuted for witchery and burned to death as punishment. When you go to the castle, if you stand at the opposite end of the castle esplanade from the castle itself, you will see a little drinking fountain in a wall known as the Witch's Well, and on which rests a plaque telling you that it is in memory of 300 supposed witches who were strangled and burned at this very spot between 1492 and 1722. One very major character behind this story is James VI, or James I as he became known in England, who strongly believed in witches. His obsession seems to have started when he went on a ship off the coast of Scotland to meet his future wife, Anne of Denmark. Unfortunately, there was a storm which nearly sank the boat, and he was quick to blame the whole thing on witches. It wasn't, as the rest of us might think, anything to do with the Scottish weather. It was because witches had been casting spells against him. He pinpointed what he said was a coven of witches living somewhere near North Berwick and had them questioned, questioned in that 17th century way to the point where they confessed to all sorts of things, 
to defiling themselves in various sordid rites, as the wording put it. I'll let Michael Fry, author of Edinburgh, A History of the City, take up the story. Under this fearsome questioning, the women described how the devil had commanded them to make a waxen image of the king and to chant over it, This is Jamie the Saxed, ordered to be consumed by a noble man. At that, the devil did greatly inveigh against the king of Scotland, calling him the greatest enemy he hath in the world. The women said they were commanded to dig up buried corpses and wrench off their limbs, tie them to rats and throw the whole lot into the sea, and that this would raise storms to sink the royal ship. James absolutely believed all of this, saying, There's a fearful number of these detestable slaves of the devil at this time in this country. He did a whole lot more research, wrote it all up in a book called Demonology, and it was his daughter, Mary Queen of Scots, who passed a law saying that witchcraft was on a par with heresy and must be severely punished, hence lots of executions followed. Witch-finders, as they were called, were appointed, who of course had to earn their salary by finding plenty of witches, and the sad result of all of this was that between the years of 1590 and 1722, 4,000 women were executed in Edinburgh on the charge of being witches. The toll is one of the highest in the whole of Europe. So, who were these unfortunate women? I dug up lots of stories and I've picked out one about a lady called Agnes Finney to recount. When she was prosecuted in 1644, there were 20 charges against her. Let's hear a few of them. So, there was the quarrel with her neighbour's son. The son called her Agnes Winnie. Agnes was insulted. Her name was Agnes Finney. They argued. 24 hours later, the young man lost all feeling in his left side and became bedridden. Within a week, he had died. And whatever else the causes could have been, this was all laid firmly at Agnes's door. She had another argument with one Robert Watt, who was a deacon of shoemakers, so had a position of authority in Edinburgh, and he had fined Agnes's son-in-law for rowdy behaviour. She retaliated, I love this phrase, by, quote, hitting him over the head with her cap. And within days his business was going fast downhill. She was rather pleased about this, having fallen out with him, and she said this would continue unless he paid back the fine, which he duly did, at which point business began to pick up, and so this was said to be evidence again of her supernatural powers. In yet another quarrel, this time with one Margaret Williamson, Agnes apparently shouted out to the devil to ask him to blow her blind. Margaret Williamson did indeed become blind, and it wasn't long before people were muttering yet again about Agnes and witchcraft. This is all related in a book called Ghostly Tales and Sinister Stories of Edinburgh, I'll be putting the details of that in the show notes. And while there's a certain pleasure in bringing our 21st century sophistication to this tale, the conclusion makes for grim reading. Quote, Finally, Agnes Finney was accused of having consulted and consorted with the devil for 28 years, and of boasting that she was a rank witch, that is, a grand, proud and noble witch. She was condemned to be worried, the words written in inverted commas, the explanation in brackets, strangled, at the stake, and then burned to ashes. One of four thousand, as I said earlier. The last witch, perhaps we'll put that in inverted commas too, was burned in Edinburgh in 1722. But as late as 1770, so 50 years later, the word witchcraft was still being mentioned 
when laws were drafted. And you will notice too the vastly anti-women sentiments in this extract, which I'm going to read. Just listen to this extract from the Act of Parliament, 1770. Quote, All women, virgin, maid or widow, that shall betray into matrimony his majesty's subjects by means of scents, paints, cosmetics, artificial teeth, false hair, hoops or high-heeled shoes, shall incur the penalty of the law, now enforced against witchcraft, and the marriage shall be null and void. And I read too that witchcraft as a crime was still on the statute books until the early 20th century. So let's move on to the less disturbing topic of cemeteries, of which there are lots in Edinburgh. You will soon notice that any nighttime tour of Edinburgh takes in at least one of them, usually Greyfriars Kirk Cemetery. But before we get to that, there are a couple of others I'd like to mention too. The first one being Colton Old Burial Ground, described in the Rough Guide as a, quote, picturesque assembly of mausoleums and gravestones, tucked behind a line of high, dark, forbidding walls. Very Edinburgh, and not for the faint-hearted. But if you do go up there, there are a couple of interesting things to look out for. The grave of David Hume, for example the Scottish philosopher known for works like Treaties of Human Nature, and, crucially in this context, an atheist, someone about whom the authorities were so worried that they had his grave guarded for eight days after he'd been buried because they were fearing public hostility. He had specifically requested that nothing religious be included in his epitaph. No, no, he said, I want, quote, a monument to be built over my body, with an inscription containing only my name and the year of my birth and death, and leaving it to posterity to add the rest. And yes, there's a large, imposing tower of a monument to him, one in fact that you can see from the city centre, from the right angle. Another less well-known thing to look out for, which in fact I did see described somewhere as possibly the most interesting in the whole burial ground, is a carved stone erected by one Captain John Gray in memory of his parents. So it's got three carvings. One is of a boat, one of those flag-flying masted ships, presumably a reference to his seafaring. But then, more spookily, for his parents, a sculpture of his father, along with a scythe and a skull and crossbones. And on the other side, a sculpture of his mother, wearing a bonnet, but where the ribbons are symbols of death, a coffin and a pair of crossbones. As well as all the graves, there's something called the Political Martyrs Monument, set up in tribute to a group of people known as the Friends of the People, who had campaigned for universal suffrage, votes for everyone. I have a suspicion they perhaps meant votes for all men, but anyway. And who, for their troubles, were tried and sentenced to 14 years deportation to Australia. Their crime? Unconscious sedition and treason. And all because they thought it shouldn't just be landowners who could vote, it should be everyone. So this huge obelisk was set up, with all their names listed on it, paid for by the Friends of Parliamentary Reform in England and Scotland in 1844. Again, another huge edifice, probably the first thing you'll notice when you go into the old burial ground and visible too from various points down in the city. And here's an uplifting quote from one of the said reformers, or would-be reformers, Thomas Muir, who apparently said in a speech in the court itself on the 30th of August, Quote, I have devoted myself to the cause of the people. It is a good cause. It shall ultimately prevail. It shall finally triumph. 
That's uplifting, isn't it? I'm afraid I wasn't able to find out whether they ever came back from Australia, but at least the cause for which they fought came eventually to a satisfactory conclusion. Another churchyard that's worth visiting is Callangate Kirk Cemetery, down at the bottom end of the Royal Mile, an old, very established Edinburgh church, the church, in fact, where the Queen worships when she is in Edinburgh. Again, highly atmospheric, slightly overgrown, very old graves in that sombre Edinburgh granite, and a number of well-known things to look out for. The one the guidebooks always mention is something called the Coachman's Stone, erected in about 1770. I'm not entirely sure why it's in a cemetery, but it was erected in memory of the Canongate Society of Coach Drivers, who used to operate an eight-day Edinburgh to London route. And yet again, as well as the inscription on it, there is a carving of a skull. These Edinburgh folk do seem to have a very dark sense of, I was going to say humour, perhaps it's just a sense of mortality. Anyway, you might also look out for Adam Smith's grave, so the 18th century economist, the one who wrote The Wealth of Nations. More controversially, there is said to be, possibly, maybe, the grave of David Rizzio, the murdered musician and secretary of Mary Queen of Scots. I don't think anyone's ever unravelled whether that was real or not. For a start, he was an Italian Catholic, so the question does remain, why would he be buried in a Protestant cemetery? Anyway, if you seek it out, it does represent a little piece of history. There is, too, the grave of the poet Robert Ferguson, whom you might remember was very well known in Edinburgh, even though he died at the very young age of 24. He died in poverty, was buried here without a headstone, and, as I think I was saying in one of the earlier episodes on Edinburgh's writers, one Robert Burns, no less, took it upon himself to pay for the headstone, which he felt Ferguson deserved, and to write himself the epitaph to be engraved on it, which reads as follows. O thou, my elder brother in misfortune, by far my elder brother in the muse, with tears I pity thy unhappy fate. And on your way in, or indeed out of the cemetery by the front gate, do pause to have a look at the statue, bronze life-size statue of Robert Ferguson, set into the pavement in, I think, 2004. And yes, the greatest of the three in terms of things to see and historical reputation is certainly Greyfriars Church, just a little way up a hillside from the grass market on the opposite side from the Royal Mile. Visited, I think, on all ghost tours in Edinburgh, famous particularly for two things, the Birkenhair grave-robbing story and Greyfriars Bobby, where there are lots of other things to seek out too. People talk, for example, about the grave of bloody George Mackenzie, Lord Advocate to Charles II, the man who organised the persecution of Scotland's Presbyterian Covenanters, a period of such violence and butchery that it became known as the Killing Time. Some 400 Covenanters were imprisoned here by Mackenzie, many of them executed, also here, hence the Martyr's Monument which you will find in the Kirkyard. You will notice some strange things known as vaulted tombs, so tombs with little walls built around them and locked railings blocking the entrance, a deterrent to grave robbing. Another precaution that was taken against this dreadful practice was known as mort safes, a sort of iron cage erected over a grave when it had been newly filled, which could be locked so that no one could get inside, and it would only be removed once the corpse inside was deemed to have rotted past the point when it would be of any interest to grave robbers, because they would no longer be able to sell it on 
to the medical profession for their research. Yes, indeed, quite gory. Another grave which current generations like to seek out is that of one William McGonagall, said even on the Scottish Poetry Library website to be possibly, quote, the world's worst poet. There's more about him in the episode on more Edinburgh writers. For here, I'll just mention again that the reason people seek his grave out is because, of course, that name is said to have been taken as an inspiration by J.K. Rowling, no less, and used for Professor McGonagall in the Harry Potter books. It is quite nice to know that although he was ridiculed during his own time, he's found a measure of fame 150 years or so after his death. It is, I think, the story of the body snatchers that people are most gripped by when they go and visit this cemetery. So you have to remember that Edinburgh, of course, was a well-known centre of medicine, lots of doctors, lots of people doing research, and it became a tradition in the 1800s that after a hanging, the body of the unfortunate criminal would be taken to the medical laboratories to be used for research. But this practice diminished, because gradually the punishment was less often hanging and more often deportation. There was no longer the supply of bodies to the medical laboratories which doctors required, and, as Duncan J.D. Smith puts it in his book Only in Edinburgh, quote, unscrupulous criminals perceived a gap in the market and began digging up bodies from churchyards and selling them to anatomists. As you may imagine, the public was horrified by this. A solution of sorts was devised with the mort safes just described. The 1832 Anatomy Act also made it illegal to use corpses for dissection. But, as Duncan Smith described, there was always a way round these things. In this case, the story particularly of the infamous pair of criminals, Burke and Hare. Two Williams, William Burke and William Hare, both Irish immigrants, who, not content with robbing graves, took to murdering people, it's believed to be at least 16 victims, and taking the bodies to a respected Edinburgh doctor, one Dr Knox, who was willing to pay for them so that he could use them in his dissection classes. They were eventually caught, and the story took a slightly unusual turn. William Hare turned King's evidence, which I think means admitting all the details of the story in return for being let go, so while he quickly disappeared from Edinburgh, the conclusion of the story, as described by Duncan J.D. Smith, was as follows. Burke was tried, found guilty of murder, and hanged in the lawn market in January 1829, before a crowd of thousands. In an ironic twist, his body was publicly dissected the next day. Parts of his skin were used to cover a pocketbook, which, together with a death mask showing the mark of the hangman's noose, is displayed in the History of Surgery Museum. A fact I believe I mentioned in the museum's episode. And you can also see Mr Burke's skeleton and a life mask of hair in the Anatomical Museum run by the University of Edinburgh. And while we're on the story of body snatching, you can find lots more similarly grisly tales in a book called Ghostly Tales and Sinister Stories of Old Edinburgh, written by three guides from the Mercat Tours Company, Alan Wilson, Des Brogan and Frank McGrail. And here is a little story taken from that. It actually has a happy ending and it's called Saved by the Snatchers. And when in the opening lines it refers to the last century, I think that means the 19th century. OK, here goes. The body of a wealthy woman was buried in Greyfriars Kirkyard one day, around the beginning of the last century. The newly dug grave was duly visited by that educationally motivated band of men, the body snatchers. 
Excavating at speed, as they always did, their eyes were soon dazzled by the sight of a number of valuable rings on the woman's hand. A small saw was taken from their indispensable bag of tools. The act of severing the fingers began. To their horror, the dead, in inverted commas, woman, sat up in her coffin and let out shrieks of pain which echoed as far as Candlemaker Row. The sacrilegious pair took to their heels and fled. It appears that the old woman had been buried in a trance, an occurrence said to be common at a time when doctor certificates of death were not the essentials which they are now. The old woman survived. And then lastly on Greyfriars Kirkyard we must of course mention Greyfriars Bobby. I told his story too in an earlier episode and mentioned I think that there's some doubt on the actual details, perhaps an idea that the story has grown a little in the telling, but for this episode, and we are perhaps suspending belief to a certain extent, I thought it would be nice to go back to the original version, retold by Christopher McNabb in his book A History of Edinburgh. He does open by admitting that, quote, the facts about Greyfriars Bobby are uncertain, but there is no doubting that this small sky terrier has become one of Edinburgh's most enduring popular heroes. He goes on to explain about John Grey, the night watchman for Edinburgh City Police, who had a little companion, Bobby the Terrier, who went everywhere he went for several years, and who, when John died of TB in February 1858, is said to have sat by his master's grave in Greyfriars Kirkyard practically all the time. To quote Mr McNabb, Rain or shine, winter or summer, Bobby refused to leave the grave except for one excursion away for a meal, which was taken, so people said, at the sound of the one o'clock gun. The Kirk gardener erected a shelter across John's grave to provide the dog with some measure of protection from the elements. Christopher McNabb goes on to explain that Bobby's devotion drew the crowds, everyone was talking about it, and a few years later, when a law was passed saying that every dog that didn't have a licence had to be destroyed, he was so popular that the Lord Provost himself, one Sir William Chambers, stepped in and paid for the licence. And to go back to Christopher McNabb's retelling, quote, Bobby kept his vigil until his death in 1872, aged 16. A year later, a statue of Bobby was unveiled outside Greyfriars, the legend reading, Greyfriars Bobby died 14th of January, 1872, aged 16 years. Let his loyalty and devotion be a lesson to us all. So yes, I think a visit to Greyfriars Kirkyard is definitely a must. So the gruesome trilogy of words in the title of the episode has now been two-thirds covered, witches and cemeteries, which brings us to ghosts. And there is no shortage of ghost stories surrounding Edinburgh. I notice that quite a few of them seem to centre around the city's theatres. For example, the Theatre Royal, which was opened in 1769, soon acquired a ghostly reputation. It was said that after each evening performance, strange noises would be heard, said to be phantom actors performing to an empty house. Not to be outdone, the Royal Lyceum Theatre opened in 1883 with a performance of Much Ado About Nothing starring Ellen Terry, and she is said to return occasionally as a ghost dressed in blue all these years later. The Edinburgh Playhouse is haunted by a ghost called, wait for it, Albert, who's thought to be either a stagehand known to be killed in an accident, who just couldn't keep away, or possibly a night watchman 
who committed suicide. And the Edinburgh Festival Theatre is said to be haunted by the ghost of the great Lafayette, who was an illusionist who burned to death in a fire in the theatre in May 1911. Whether you believe in ghosts or not, I think you can conclude from those tales that working in the theatre brought a certain amount of danger into your life. There are ghost stories too in the guidebook to the Mary King's Close Museum. The story, for example, of one Thomas Coltart and his wife, who moved into the building in 1685 with their maidservant, who fled almost immediately, shrieking that the house was haunted. Sure enough, more ghosts appeared. There was one Sunday a man's disembodied head floating through the air, which disappeared as Mrs. Coltart fainted and reappeared that evening after supper, joined apparently by a young child wearing a coat. The guidebook continues, quote, Thomas and his wife prayed for mercy, but to no avail. A severed arm appeared and beckoned them. A ghostly dog ran into the room, followed by a cat and a whole roomful of weird little creatures dancing prettily. Then the air was rent by a dreadful groan, and all the ghosts and ghoulies disappeared. A few weeks later, having himself appeared in a vision to a friend, Thomas died. That story was published in 1685, and people have been retelling it and frightening each other with it ever since. There's also a more recent story connected to Mary King's Close, the story of a Japanese psychic, one Aiko Gibo, who came to make a study of haunted places and claimed there was one room in Mary King's Close with a very sad and unhappy history. I cannot enter this room, she said. It is too strong. There is a child beside me. Her little hand is clutching my trouser leg. I just cannot go into this room. Eventually, the psychic was persuaded to go in and investigate. She said that she had managed to communicate with the young girl, who told her that she had been abandoned there by her parents, had lost her favourite doll, and was just heartbroken. The story has been connected to the plague years, when it's known that a number of children died in this house, the supposition being that the little girl had indeed been abandoned by her parents because she was showing symptoms and they wanted to protect the rest of the family. The story has a couple of endings. Firstly, the fact that the Japanese psychic produced a doll and took it to the room, claimed that the little girl was delighted to receive it. This prompted people from all over the world to send other toys, of which there is a collection in said room, which you will be shown if you go to look round, and as a postscript, more recently, the original doll was stolen. Unfortunately, I have not been able to find any reference to what the Japanese psychic did about this, so I'll have to leave you just wondering about that. And to finish off then, one more story from the aforementioned book, from the chapter entitled Sinister Stories of Old Edinburgh. So this one goes right back to the 16th century, to a night when the king himself, King James IV, was at prayer in Holyrood Abbey, when a dreadful cry was heard at midnight, when else, from the Mercat Cross, and investigations revealed that Satan himself was there, reading out a list of names of people who were going to die in the next 40 days, or as he put it, would be appearing before him in the underworld. I'll let the authors take up the story. Quote, this summons was heard by Sir Richard Lawson, who was making his way home to the high street beyond the Mercat Cross. Fear gripped Sir Richard as he heard the satanic roll call. The list began with James, the King of Scots himself. After the sovereign's name, the devil summoned individually the dukes, earls, lords, 
barons, gentlemen and sundry burgesses who were also commanded to attend the devil's presence within the said time. Towards the end of this list, Sir Richard Lawson heard his own name being called, Lawson. Going into his gallery stair, he cried out for his servant to bring him his purse, took out a crown and cast it down the stairs from the gallery, saying, I, for my part, appeal from your summons and judgment. Take me to the mercy of my God. So, as the authors explain, the Battle of Flodden took place shortly afterwards. James led his Scottish army down to fight the English, and, as you may know, they were heavily defeated. So, as the authors write, quote, Who died in that battle? James, the King of Scots, and every one of his dukes, earls, lords, barons, and sundry burgesses, whose names were called out by the devil, to Sir Richard Lawson, all except Sir Richard Lawson, the only man who returned to tell the tale, the only man who had appealed to God to escape the judgment of the devil. Stirring stuff, and there's no shortage of that sort of tale in the book, whose title I'll put on the show notes, and which I recommend to anyone who likes a ghostly tale or a sinister story. So then, that's more or less it for today. In the next episode, I'm going to move on to something very different, namely a tour of some of the art galleries in Edinburgh, some bits and pieces on some of the very famous Scottish paintings you can see there and on the artists who produced them, and I hope that you'll be able to join me for that. For the moment, then, it just remains for me to sign off another attempt at Scottish Gaelic, which I think means thank you and goodbye, and sounds, possibly, something like this. Tarpa leave. Agus Marshin leave. <laughs>